0: Women hold up half the world.
1: I'm Justin. I'm a Scholar Communications Librarian. My pronouns are he and him.
0: I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library. My pronouns are they, them.
2: I'm Jay. I am a Music Library Director, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm we Nancy. have a guest. Oh, sorry. Would
1: you like to introduce yourself? It's fine. Happens all the time.
3: Sure. Um, I'm Nancy. I am a Copyright Specialist Librarian, and I use. I'm ambivalent about my own pronouns, so I welcome any.
1: Welcome. Twitter copyright powerhouse, Nancy Sims. Legend.
3: Mm. These are all very interesting interpretations.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we don't recognize traditional academic clout, only like how popular you are on
2: Twitter. So it's like we've had AJ on and that's like having a king on, so. <laughs> mm.
3: Yep, yep, totally get that.
1: I've got some Reddit, ask Reddit, ask, ask Reddit, ask, uh, ask.
0: Those people are dum-dums.
1: Okay. All right. Public library seeking ideas for mystery bag loot crates. Our public library has been doing mystery bags on and off this past year, and we've built up a bit of a following just when we are running out of ideas of topics, items to include. In the past, we've done things like self-care with bath bombs, recipes, a bookmark tea, a small chocolate bar, and a book from the library to return, and a friend's book to keep. Another one was centered around tea with an antique free from the local church thrift store cup, a few tea bags, books, again, one from the library, one with friend's centered around tea. We've done foreign countries travel, a Halloween bag, et cetera. We put these things in large paper grocery bag with a barcode of anything that has to be returned on the outside and staple them shut. We are almost out of donated bags and are thinking of switching to returnable barcoded tote bags. A library nearest does custom printed boxes, but those don't fit in our book drop. We're looking for more ideas. If you have one, please share. So what would you put in a bag of mysteries? And this is for checking out or to keep? I think it's a mixture of things that are to keep and then usually like a library book. So it's like a theme. So you have like a a library book and then you build the bag around the book.
3: I liked the uh, sneaky way of uh, offloading friends' books into these uh, one <laughs> from the friends for you to keep and one from for you to to return from the library. I didn't have any like good ideas right off the bat, but I wondered if there were ways to reuse even the kinds of things people you know we get donations that aren't really even things people want to use as books like old encyclopedia sets and stuff like would there be ways to turn those into things people might want for crafts or projects or like you know old crossword puzzle books or something i didn't have any good ideas when i was thinking about this but i liked the here's how we sneak the things back out into the the other people's uh trash flow problems
1: Yeah. Cause we had the, the regular weeding discussion about what do people want? Um, yeah. I think dictionaries and stuff like that are definitely good for art books.
2: Yeah. I actually did a, like a encyclopedia, like art book in like seventh grade. So definitely a fun art project where you do like a little, like based on whatever letter it is of like the dictionary or encyclopedia. And then we would have to like, it's like, okay, if someone had like the letter H for theirs then they had to like do so many like pages where they did a cool thing where each of the things they did was of that letter and they could like cut holes out and then like you know paste the rest of the book and stuff so like little little arts and crafts projects you could put stuff in there like that has to do with the letter or the subject could be fun
1: I would do the thing where you fan out the book and you cut shapes into it, and then the bag could be structured around how to do that. So instructions on how to get the file, how to print it out, how to make book art. And that way you could really offload a bunch of books that way because it's a mixture of a project. And it's got, I don't know if you would probably wouldn't be able to get tools, but at least you could get instructional pamphlets to put in there and you could get like a basic like shopping list of tools you'll need. So like an exacto and a a printer, you could print at the library, but you could just put some designs in there, just print out a bunch. Mm
2: -hmm. And it's nice because then it can help show patrons like and like even like teach the skill to patrons of like, this is the types of books that libraries tend to get rid of. And also, we don't have to be so precious about material objects. Like just you can cut up a book. It's fine. You're not going to like get in trouble, right? The book police aren't going to come get you unless they're people with like sticks up their asses, right? Here's and so that could be like- Here's a Patterson
0: oh, that nobody wants anymore. Please, please right. do whatever you want with it. <laughs>
2: like it's it's fine you're not gonna get in trouble for like cutting up a book and like especially like you're gonna be making art out of it like Mm -hmm. that's super fun
0: sorry just james patterson's ghostwriter like rising out of the ether to taunt you because
3: yeah i think there's somebody who's either on staff at my library or who's retired and now does does it as like art projects like that with books where the fan them out and cut and fold them into cool shapes because they've definitely been used for retirement gifts for a couple of people from our library because they make really cool things. I should figure out who that was. And I think it's a it's well, I mean taking the whole idea in a slightly different direction, but like a, that idea of showing people who use libraries what you're saying about like the material object isn't isn't sacrosanct. Look, even people in libraries, you know, even people who work there make make this kind of
2: art. Yeah, And we'll finally outgrow the, oh no, it's a dumpster full of books I someone call the authorities. Like maybe we'll outgrow that as a society. But it just happened like this week again forever. So who knows?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. We'll just do that one for today. And I'll save the others for later. So that was Ask Reddit.
0: Those people are dumb dums
1: So. New year, new public domain entries for 2023. Quick definitions. And actually, we don't have many. Well, we do have lawyers on once in a while. But I would like to hear a a concise definition of public domain from a lawyer.
3: I guess that's probably me. Um,
1: No, uh... I'm sorry. I was talking to Sadie. (laughs) (laughs) The bird
2: lawyer.
3: Birds aren't real. (laughs) The public domain means things in different contexts. There's so just like for the copyright specific issue of the public domain, the library, the one that pops up the most in libraries, the public domain is all the things that are like things that have copyrights that don't have copyrights. And that's either things that had copyrights, but the copyrights ended, or things that never had a copyright
1: to start from. And so what are these like copyright things? You mean things that are like uncopyrightable, like government docs?
3: Yeah. So, um, yeah, like things that have copyrights is a really broad category, and it does vary a little bit between different countries. But I mean things like books, movies, music, sculptures, other visual artworks, performing artworks. To some extent, those vary more in different countries. In some countries, uh, databases have some gener uh, some some rights that are copyright like uh, so. All of that stuff, you know, you can't tell looking at a book whether there is a copyright or not. So that's what I mean by like things that are like things that have copyrights. Most books in the last couple hundred years had a copyright at some point, but there are some books that had copyrights and don't anymore. And there are some books that never had copyrights. For example, just what you raised, federal US federal government works.
2: Yeah. And what is the difference between slash relation with like public domain and open access? Because I feel like open access is also a term people hear you know a lot about and we've talked a lot about on here.
3: Yeah, for sure. One thing I sometimes will do, especially when I'm introducing this to people who may have heard lots of those these overlapping words, is talk about the difference between public domain, open access and public access. Ooh, yeah. Because like things that are publicly accessible is a is a what super amorphous category, right? Something is publicly accessible online if you have internet access, which is a big if, but like things that are publicly accessible online are things that anybody can get to. And some people confuse that for public domain. So they'll say I found it on Google Images so it doesn't have a copyright, right? No. You found it on Google Images because it's publicly accessible. And then but then people also publicly accessible things people also confuse that with an open access. So it publicly accessible super catch-all would be like things anybody can get to. You know, if something's on a bookstore shelf or you have to pay to get it, it's still publicly accessible public domain as far as copyright goes has a specific legal definition open access has a couple of different semi-official definitions and and people use them interchangeably but (laughs) like the super purist ist definition is uh like the budapest open document from a, a while back now um i think the super Purest definition of open access is things that are available for anybody with an internet connection to read and that also are free from copyright restrictions or are available to share. In at least U.S. academia and I think most northern hemisphere, well, not even like the, the, the people who throw more money at research publishing, the countries like that, uh, open access is often only that research publications that are available to anybody with an internet connection, they leave off the, and they have sharing rights, part of the definition. Gotcha. Which is, as you say, these are all things that are really easy to confuse with each other. That's part of why is because they're all used a little bit slippery ways.
1: Yeah. It's allowed a lot of problems with the way that the publishers are trying to retain clicks on their websites by allowing you to have an online-only version that you can share and put in your repository rather than giving you something with an open... Letting your version of record, not even the version of record, the accepted manuscript be under an open license so that you can just put it in your repository. And then they embargo the the actual putting in your repository for a long time.
2: Like access versus what can you do with it? Yep.
1: Yeah, basically.
2: Yep. It's just
1: a link that you're not allowed to download from. So it's sort of like... a, It's almost like controlled digital lending in a way.
3: Yeah, putting the... Uh, you know, a lot of, it's not just publishers, like we see it with um, commercial streaming content, like you, you can still download most new music in various ways, but few people do. Um, Like lots of new TV and movies, you you can't get in a digital file that you can have. And that's, it's the same kinds of things are done with academic publications in the, in the open access world where they want to make it available for people to get to but not necessarily available for people to have their own copies that they can manipulate or reshare or share. Let's say the publisher goes down. Okay. Who gets to share it after that? Those kinds of things.
2: Yeah. Like with like public domain stuff and sorry if i derailing, I feel like often it's like movies, books and music that tend to be like the big ones that people tend to like think about. And that's been a huge discussion lately with like, you know, things that have never had a physical release so, like one of my favorite horror movies, The Empty Man, which only came out a couple of years ago, but it has never had a physical release ever. It's like just streaming. And so, if I wanted to, like, quote, own a copy, I would have to get a pirated copy and like burn it on a disc or 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 something. And so, I wonder how that's going to affect public domain in however many decades sure. or years and, and when even we get to access. That. Yeah,
3: because. For example, a lot of like this is totally a little bit off topic, but it's something I think about a lot with with respect to the public domain and also with res- respect to libraries in general, like if they won't let libraries even buy copies that we get to keep of movies, of music, of TV shows, of books. If we can't buy copies that we get to keep, we all know if we, if you work in libraries for a, a while, you'll you'll find sometime when somebody who Some company that published something 30 years ago comes back and asks your library for your copy because they don't have it anymore. And that's happening on a hugely sped up cycle now where there's a bunch of shows that um, HBO max, for example, was doing wild and creative animation stuff. And when they decided to shift their sort of focus under new uh, uh, corporate leadership, they didn't just stop making new versions of these shows, that very popular shows. They took them off the streaming services. They're not there anymore. You can't legally watch them anymore. And libraries were never able to buy copies. And so, A, there's the public access problem. And then, B, there's the public domain problem of, like, these companies aren't going to have copies in 10 years, much less, um, whatever, 95 or something.
1: Yeah, I imagine this is a problem that, because it will affect those companies, because they might want them back in the future. That this, this not selling DVDs and and physical copies, hopefully, will self correct pretty soon. But moving on to, uh, I also want to. Well, I don't think we have to cover the burn Convention right now, uh, but that's an international <laughs> copyright thing. Uh, it's an inter- international copyright conf- treaty that has caused our public domain to shrink and slow down and freeze for a long time. But what's new? in public domain 2023 (laughs) duke university put out a nice little roundup of some stuff that is uh everything from 1927 that just entered the public domain this year so i think a big one is the film metropolis so
2: excited
1: And the final Sherlock Holmes stories, which will come up again. So I believe that's all of Sherlock Holmes is now in the public domain. So it, I think that's going to give the the estate of Doyle, they won't have as much to do, I feel. Um, they're going to get very bored because they can't sue people, um, which seems to be mostly what they were interested in doing.
0: I think it's really interesting that the Ice Cream for Ice Cream song is now finally apparently in the public domain, when I don't think anybody even realized that was not like the happy birthday song where like people just use it all the time anyways for whatever. So that was the one that surprised me on the list.
2: I think, I mean, I'm obviously like hype about Metropolis, especially because like, the film history of metropolis and how many quote versions of metropolis that there are like, even though it's like, okay, like, yeah, there's, if there's like restorations or additions, those are still in copyright, but with metropolis, what even is the original print because like lost footage of it was found in like, I don't know, like Argentina or something like 10 years ago. And there's so many different cuts of it that like, I don't know if we know what the original cut of metropolis even is. And so I find that one really fun. And then the jazz singer, I also find it really fun since that's like the quote, quote, like first talkie and um, you know, singing in the rain is like about that transition into Hollywood and Babylon, which I did not like, but just came out is about that as well. And so I wonder what that being in the public domain will do about like films commenting on that era in Hollywood, for example. And that's what I have to say. (laughs)
1: It'll definitely make, film courses easier in the next 10 years or so because it'll actually be films. People want to study most of the stuff now is not something you would use in a film class, but as we get into like the thirties and forties, it'll actually be films. People want to study because right now it's kind of like silent era stuff only.
2: No, it's not. (laughs) You study all sorts of shit in film classes in college.
3: I I was going to throw in there that actually, at least in the U.S most viewing of film in classes and or for educational use doesn't have to wait until it's in the public domain but it is true that for things like public showings or like more expanded access to the historical films like one of the reasons there aren't Uh, extant copies of metropolis that are we're sure the original is part well i don't know for sure that this is true of metropolis this is actually true for lots of other film is like nobody legally could make copies of it and the people who had copies of it didn't keep their copies in good shape so there aren't like it's it's to a certain extent, copyright protection is is really good for creators. And then at a certain point, copyright protection actually makes it more difficult for works to survive sometimes. And I think that that's really true for some of the early film history. So I'm a big fan of more copies keeping things safer and with things coming out of the public domain Uh, coming into the public domain out of out of term protection some of those early film history things more people will have access to and then more people will be able to make and and hopefully preserve copies in the long run
2: yeah there are just so many examples of like i think it's like the passion of joan of arc where it's like the version we have is not actually like the original intended version because it was like destroyed on purpose or something and we have like some sort of like extra extra cut copy or something that wasn't intended to actually be the thing because the original cut of it was destroyed or something. And it's still like one of the most perfect, beautiful films ever fucking made. But yeah, instances of of that where it's like, if someone didn't have like a reel of this in their closet or something, then we might not ever, we would, would have lost this film. Sorry, I really like film history. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, it also makes things easier for distance learning, too, if it's just in the public domain. Because a lot of things with film classes is, can you get it streaming? Can you get the DVD? If you have the DVD, if it's an online class, then how do you copy the DVD? How do you stream it? And like that's that raises so many copyright problems that people just don't do it. So it'll be easier for at least the more films from the 20th century that get into public domain will just be easier to just put out into like your syllabus and people can just go watch it on YouTube.
3: Yeah. Yeah, And for people who aren't like taking an officially enrolled course, right? There's lots of people Mm -hmm. who aren't taking classes who should be able to get at these things. And that'll be great. That's one of the wonderful things when things become more shareable in the public domain.
2: It's like, do you know how many times I had to watch Metropolis in one semester in different classes in college in one semester? Three. So now we're getting to the era where like it's big ones, you know?
1: Yeah, that's what I was saying. I was surprised that nothing, no sound compositions entered the public domain, which seems strange to me. There were, there were written compositions that you can make identical to the recordings, but the mm-hmm. recordings
2: didn't enter the public domain. Rubbing my grubby hands together about music copyright.
1: <laughs> it shows how few things were, I guess, in the public domain, or does it have to do with the, the new music copyright law?
3: No, this this has a whole bunch of little moving pieces, and I do not claim to understand all of them. I'm like, I, I w- I've said this before. Uh, music copyright is its own subspecialty, partly because the business practices in commercial music production have evolved so that there's all these kinds of things that people talk about as copyright things that actually have no basis in statutory law. So if you read the law, There's nothing. There's uh, if you've ever heard of sync licenses. There's this thing that everybody in music treats as a definite copyright right is the right to control synchronization of your music to a a video picture. Like if your music is used in a, a movie soundtrack, it's because they have a sync right from you. That's there's no statutory basis for that. So there's a billion business practices like that in music copyright. But there's also the actual code for music copyright in the statute, the section that is about music copyright is almost as long as the rest of the U.S. copyright code. So I, when we get into the thicket of music copyright, I go, whoo. But there's one thing that I can no- tell you for sure here. Sound recordings weren't covered by federal copyright law at all. Until the nineteen seventy six act took effect and the act took effect on january first of nineteen seventy eight. No sound recordings had any federal copyright before then. Some states, states right had. Yep, some states yep. had some protections for sure. But then there have been some laws recently that have tried to reach back and normalize some of those pre 76 sound recordings. And that's where it gets into a level of detail that I don't have a good track of, though it sounds like maybe Jay does.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, 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 do not have a law degree. I took a copyright class in college, but I was working in a music library in college with um, Kathleen laurenti as my boss. Then that's how I got interested in music copyright because of her and then her husband does like put like fair use music and she was like doing stuff with my best friend is like a case study for like teaching students like copyright and putting their music up on streaming and selling it and whatnot. Um, and so like, that's what got me interested in copyright was music copyright. Um, so I don't claim to understand a lot of it, but I know how convoluted it is and how each different aspect of like a composition, like has its own like copyright nonsense and like, yeah, no, because now I'm just gonna go off about that one like Bridgewater entertainment versus NWA whatever <laughs> case that makes me mad and also I'll shut up
1: now. Let's go into Sherlock Holmes. So for a while Sherlock Holmes was used as an example of things that are of a work that is partially in the public domain. So you could use traits of the character for works that were already in the public domain, and then as other part, but other parts later on you were not allowed to Use, I can't remember Nancy. If you were making a point that that was always kind of dubious in terms of, is this just a general detective mm-hmm. or like archetype kind of person? Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Because this still is in sure. effect, effect for like Superman.
3: Yep. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a place where like if you read sort of the 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 how the law is supposed to work stuff about U.S. copyright law, and I'm being real specific about U.S. copyright law here because. I think other countries do some of this, but not quite the same way we do, partly because other countries have had more consistent terms of copyright for a longer time. We've changed our term of copyright a bunch of times. So it sort of matters whether various things were published on certain dates more in the U.S. than it does in some other countries. If you look at how copyright law is supposed to work, characters, in theory, didn't get a copyright. Ideas don't get a copyright. Mm-hmm. At some point, a character is unique enough that it will have a copyright. U.S. law has actually evolved on this point, on these points. There's a whole bunch of different cases that you can point to that are like, there's, there's cases about like an ad that doesn't actually say James Bond at any point, but is like somebody who looks like a a tuxedo wearing kind of spy in a fancy car and sort of very strongly implies James Bond. It may even be in an Aston Martin. I'm not sure. And it's in an advertisement and they didn't license the character. And so there were, there were these, there's been cases like that over mostly in the 20th century of trying to say like, what is it that is copyrightable about a character versus what's just an idea? Sherlock Holmes is a good example. Superheroes are also really good examples. What's kind of resulted is you can sort of talk about character traits as having copyrights. So things that are like identifiably Superman is a superhero with super strength who is of uh, you know non-Earth origin. That is from the very original Superman publications. But Superman didn't fly originally. That got added later. And so there's actually, there's been case law, a lot of discussions around Superman, like different people control different versions of Superman. With the Sherlock Holmes stuff, it didn't matter very much in the US. Uh, Well, it did a little bit. There was this very long period um, because we changed our copyright terms for a couple of times where we froze our public domain. And so everything published prior to 1923, all published works from prior to 1923 were in the public domain and published works from after 1923 were out of the public, dom- were, were covered by copyright. That there was, I, it may have been over 20 years. I'm not sure exactly how long the period was that that was frozen. It was a long, long time. A lot of people in libraries still think that 1923 is like this magic year And most of the Holmes stories were published before then. So for a long time, 1923 was the only relevant year. And in the UK, I'm pretty sure this is something where I was not quite sure in that video, and I'm still not quite sure of the details here. I I think that Sherlock Holmes has not had a copyright under UK law for quite a while, but there was a long period when the only point of contention under US law was 1923. Pre 1923 stories definitely didn't have a copyright. So you definitely could use those for a movie or for a book that's a takeoff on Sherlock Holmes. They didn't have a copyright, but there were also these books from after 1923 and the Conan Doyle estate would go after people and say, you owe us licensing fees. And people would be like, but I'm not talking about the post-1923 character traits. And sometimes that would get you out from under it, and sometimes it wouldn't. There's, again, cut me off if I get too rambly here, but there was a declaratory judgment case where somebody who really wanted to have this like clear once and for all went to court and said, I want to do stuff with pre-23 homes. Am I allowed to do that? And a court said, "Yes, you are allowed to do that." That was fairly late in the time period of the Conan Doyle estate kind of messing around with this pre twenty three, post twenty three distinction. But that was, was like really, twenty thirteen. Yeah, that was a pretty yeah twenty thirteen sounds right, pretty recent case. And the reason I say it's fairly late in that is that the nineteen twenty three year unlocked unfroze in twenty nineteen. So it's been Mm -hmm. moving forward since then. And as we're talking about today, the very last Holmes story. So there were, I think, maybe four post-23 stories. One unlocked almost immediately. Two were later and unlocked like last year. And then this last one unlocks this year. And so now there is absolutely no claim that any Holmes traits have any copyrights under U.S. law.
1: Bring back Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century. You can do it now. You don't have to pay anyone.
3: Well, arguably, some of the people who have made things based on Sherlock Holmes, like, right, like, the there's like a, I don't know, there was a Michael Caine movie parody when I was a kid. Like, there have been a whole bunch of Holmes parodies. Like, at some point, Holmes is so pervasive, like... If you start making something that is based on Holmes but is a parody, are you at some point starting to draw from some of those later works that were parodies of the earlier Holmes works and will they be able to come after you for yeah, I don't know.
2: <laughs> Wasn't there like a whole deal with that like Enola Holmes show? They
3: the Conan Doyle's estate yeah. tried to do something with Enola Holmes. I don't remember exactly what they were attempting with that one because I'm
2: pretty sure that he was like nice or something. Yeah, like that was the trait. He was nice when he hadn't been. Or yeah, something.
3: they were aiming for something from a post twenty three story, and it was a like they they had to have known it was only a couple of years until they're until all the stories were out anyway. So it was it was a little bit of a last gasp on their part, I think. I'd be interested to see if they end up trying for trademark control of anything related to Holmes because they certainly could have some some elements of like we're the only off you know we're the only authentic Holmes kind of sources, that's a that's something that's not as time-bound.
1: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned what's copyrightable and eligible subject matter. There is, since these AI tools have been coming out in the past couple of years that are very powerful and causing a lot of people to, I think, prematurely freak out about certain things. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's going to immediately impact things. Public domain and AI-generated content, uh, you put a little note in here. Yeah. And... That also, I mean, that that includes things that are like, what's in the public domain that gets created now, and is that including AI-generated content? And then I put a note that the Naruto monkey selfie case, the only reason that was ever, because everyone always talks about like, oh, it's a monkey, he owns the copyright. But that was always going to be about AI. That was always going to be, can a non-human, because law only impacts persons, so, if it doesn't impact a monkey, would it impact an artificial intelligence? Because they're not persons, and the law doesn't bind non-persons. You can't you can't put an elephant on trial, even if you're Edison,
2: right? Yeah. And I'd be curious to see like how who the code writers are and how what role they play. But that's just me.
0: Remind me what this Naruto monkey case is again? Because I saw that oh,
2: note was you like the monkey who took a selfie.
3: Yeah, there was a case a few years ago where a uh, a picture. Started circulating online. It's just—it's like—it's a really eye-catching picture. And It's not just eye-catching; it's sort of mind-grabbing. It's a monkey who took a picture of himself or herself that became a point of contention later. Don't misgender um, the monkey. <laughs> well, right, okay. It a okay. Point of contention later, as to whether the photographer's story was was whether he had changed his story or not. In any case, it, it's a high-quality photo taken with a high-quality camera. The original. Post said something like, I left my camera out while I was doing something else and I came back to find the monkey playing with it and this photo resulted. And probably almost as soon as any copyright nerds looked at it, they said, If the monkey took it and you didn't intend for them to take it, there's absolutely no chance there's a copyright in this picture. You can use tools to create a photo. So potentially, if you intended for the monkey to take the picture, Then the monkey is a tool you are using to express your own creative impulses, and and so the immediate change of the story was I intentionally left my camera out for the monkey to play with it, and I'm totally I agree that this was absolutely always a little bit about AI, but also one of the main one of the main uh, litigation parties was the PETA the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. So there was a little bit of some other kinds of of sort of setting up legal arguments going on here. It wasn't just about copyright, but it was always, and interestingly, with potential for things like AI. And one of the reasons I talked about eligible subject matter in talking about Sherlock Holmes is because there are some things where even when there is a copyright, the people who own Sherlock Holmes don't get to own them, and that's like ideas are not copyrightable. They're never your, the idea of a scientific detective was never owned. You could always, you know, write a, a detective who used modern scientific methods to investigate things, and and indeed that has become a whole genre of detective literature. Uh, the idea of that kind of detective was never owned. There are other things that are never owned, and there's been a long-standing rule in U.S. law, at least, but probably other places that the source of a copyright is creative expression and artistic choices. And of course, only a human can make those. And that's why there was longstanding rules that animal created works can't have a copyright. Potentially, you could use an animal as a tool with intent. I mean, actually, like some um, sort of studio created artworks kind of are like that, right? Human animals are used as tools. Uh, Chihuly, for example, like... Is a the glass really popular? Glass artist Chihuly hasn't made any of Chihuly's glass sculptures in many, many years. There's a whole team of people who build them, um, but the artistic driving force is this artist supposedly. So sometimes humans are tools for other people's art, but that's the whole. That's one of the things that's a big bone of contention with AI-generated visual art, uh, text. I haven't seen or heard really compelling music yet, but I bet it's coming. Um, And there's currently some discussion uh, at the Copyright Office, I think there's maybe even a preliminary opinion, is AI-generated art copyrightable? If a human didn't make the creative choices, there's a billion different arguments about places humans might have made creative choices in the process of generating AI content, but there's no determinative one right now.
2: Yeah, because it's like I would argue that like you know there's code to be written, and how many people wrote the code for whatever generator? And then like I I saw this really good post about like when um, Dolly was like first hitting it big, and people were doing the like you know shit posty type prompts of it. Like I'm going to do like Karl Marx doing like slam dunks, like, you know, cool stuff like that. And how the point wasn't the art that was made, it was showing the prompt Mm -hmm. and how funny and clever or smart the person was to come up with that prompt to then get whatever image. Mm -hmm. And so whatever image wasn't even the point, it was the, the prompt And so then I would argue that, like, all the actual stuff that goes into making AI art is all the code that a human being wrote, and then the prompt that a human being came up with, and anything that comes after that. Like, I make, like, generative artwork sometimes, and I have, like, it will come out different every single time I do it based on various factors, Mm -hmm. but I still, like, wrote the code Mm -hmm. (laughs) for it, right? Sometimes I don't even like, I, I don't know. So it, to me, it's like, yeah, an AI quote, a computer made AI art, but then like who made that computer <laughs> who put yeah. in the prompt? So that's why the argument that like, it doesn't stand up, like it doesn't have copyright just doesn't, I don't know, make sense to me, but you well, know
3: this is so this is something like copyright nerd lawyers and this i'm mean, like i don't <laughs> just mean copyright nerds and i don't just mean nerdy lawyers i mean copyright nerd lawyers it's a small slice but i know a lot of them this is the sort of thing we'll sit around and talk about um you've hit on two of the main arguments for why ai generated art works, why the works might be copyrighted and there's two immediate counters one for each of them one is if the code is the human's creative contribution, then the code is copyrightable. Yep. But the output is that comes oh, yeah. out of that code is no more copyrightable by the code writer than files that come out of Photoshop belong to the people who wrote the Photoshop code. That's one argument and then for mm-hmm. the for the the discussion about the prompt generation is the creative work? Well, then maybe the prompt is copyrightable except there's actually already some law and rulings on short phrases so maybe 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 not yeah is the is the prompt enough creative contribution to say that the resulting artworks are copyrightable by the person who made the prompt if the artworks are not predictable by the person who made the prompt mm-hmm. and they're not right like you can't you 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 put in the prompt and you get multiple things back Or depending on, but I'm thinking about most of the visual art generators, but but you can't predict what it's going to be. So you can't really say that the prompt was your creative contribution to the exact work that came out. Like, this is going way down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Backing up, though, a half step, right? Because a lot of people, the, the idea that a new thing, like the artwork that comes out of a visual image generator could not have a copyright, even though there was work involved, even though there was somebody creative thinking about producing this thing, is a hard idea. And so I'll, I'll go back to an example that one of my favorite copyright teachers, Susan Cornfield, who's a, pr- a practitioner in Michigan who taught an advanced seminar that I took, she posed to us early on is, if you have a f- camera and you knock it off of a table and it takes a picture on the way down. Like you, it, the, the shutter release gets triggered as it's falling to the floor. There is a picture, but were there actually creative choices made in the creation of that picture? You know, my, my after many too many discussions about that, my take on that is no. And Naruto is kind of the same. Like if the original story is true, then no human made choices resulting in that picture. AI generated is more complicated. There are absolutely human choices involved, but are they determinative of the art that came out? Not from everything I understand about how AI, mod- AI models work and yeah. machine learning, really not AI. So yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a conflation of what is art? Like is AI art art? I would say, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But art is not automatically copyrightable, but we're used to it being automatically copyrightable because of the way it's produced. And so we go, Oh, it is art. Therefore it is copyrightable, but copyright is this weird, like you should read. um, Everyone should read April Hathcock's paper on copyright as sort of a patriarchal institution. And it's very much, it assumes there is one author, one creative genius, which is not how creativity works. And it assumes that's why all these weird things about like intention and difference, all that stuff matters. I remember getting into it one time, someone needed to take photos of slides, but slides like, um, like dissection slides and those do they have creativity in them because you have to create them in such a way that they are viewable in a microscope. Mm-hmm. And so we had to get into like sculpture copyright. And it's like, well, if you took a picture of a sculpture is do you control the copyright of the picture so that and this is like an oer discussion. So like could we put this on an oer basically? is right. we wanted to take photos of these slides and we wanted to. so if you took the photo, could you do it? Is there enough originality in the photo? was mm-hmm. like a big thing that came up. and it I don't
2: think we came to like a conclusion. capitalism is the problem as always, with all of this
3: <laughs> in, in many ways, right? One of the things that I this is same kind of like, ideas about how things work crashing together because they're in conflict. One of the things I'll talk about is really similar to what you're talking about with like uh, microscope slides, scientific figures. Most, so ideas aren't copyrightable and facts aren't copyrightable. And there is in fact an element of this whole, like what's not eligible for copyright called the, this is not in any of our notes as we planned this episode, I apologize, but there's this idea called the idea expression dichotomy and this is absolutely things that April Hathcock was talking about like we have this idea that you can separate ideas from how people express them there's all kinds of problematic constructs underlying this but there's also something called the merger doctrine in US law which is if there's only one way to an express an idea then you can't have the copyright around that either and that's where we get to things like equations are not supposed to have copyrights, chemical molecules, right? You can't have a copyright in what the actual composition of a chemical molecule is. You usually can't even get patents in something that basic. So I run into this issue with academics a lot, where like I say things like, This diagram in your paper is of about facts, or this diagram in your paper is representing an idea. And because of that, there isn't a copyright. I'm usually bringing this up because somebody has transferred away the copyright in their work. They have given it away to a publisher, and then they want to reuse their figure later. And they're being, they're like, can I, do I have to get permission, this and that. And I will bring up this idea that I don't think there is a copyright here. There's no, this is an, this is purely factual. This is, and it's a figure in a paper. So it has to have a copyright. I'm like, it's a figure in a paper that conveys only factual information, and factual information is not copyrightable, or a table was one of the things that'll happen. So there are ways that some of those things have can get copyrights, but people are so used to this idea that it looks like X, therefore it has a copyright, that when you start saying... Yeah. It looks like X, it doesn't have a copyright. That's hard. And also it doesn't have a copyright sounds to a lot of people like there's no value here. Mm-hmm. There's no creative value here. There's no discovery value here. And of course that's not it at all, right? The This is being very idealistic about copyright. The reason ideas don't have copyrights is because they're so important that we don't want to give anyone exclusive control of them. But that's very hard for people to reconcile With this really broad system we have where so many things do have copyrights and have exclusive control, when you say, I don't think there is a copyright in this thing that you produced, and that's good because it's so important that everybody should get to use it, that runs up against a whole lot of presumptions that most people have about why they should control and own and even monetize their, their research and creative output that's really challenging
2: has anything like that ever affected like because i feel like when we talk about the public domain like public domain day and it's always like here are the works the old things entering copyright this sort of like vague nebulous like does this count is this a a thing that like looks like it should have copyright but isn't or is this an idea or is this copyrightable like have there been instances of like when public domain day is coming around and we're not sure if something is about to enter the public domain or it has already or or anything?
3: There's a few things like that. Most of those kinds of like, we're not sure if there is still a copyright. Most of those are actually about technicalities, about things like registration, or whether there was a copyright symbol on it in the right place at the right time. Gotcha. Usually these conceptual things are, uh, they're usually left a little bit more in sort of an interpersonal negotiation space, or just in like a, I'm trying to decide what the next, what the right path for dealing with a problem is. Do I decide to treat it like it has a copyright or not? There is one thing, I only know this because I wrote about it. There's a case several years ago, where a researcher copied some equations and diagrams from another researcher and published them before the person who had originated this research and there's a court case about it and the court case they never they try arguing copyright and unfortunately they don't have enough teeth there's not enough there there in the copyright it's an equation primarily and its figures that don't that don't have, they don't have quote creative expression. The figures are very factual. So the judge, when I wrote about it, I said something like this, like you can read it in the opinion that the judge wishes the judge could do something with copyright here because it's a clear injustice. It's clearly somebody swiped somebody else's stuff and published it before the first person could, but they're arguing copyright. And there's, this is really, really not the kind of stuff that has a copyright. So it's new work. It's valuable you know, research. It's definitely a ton of effort on the part of the researcher. So the judge wants to be able to use copyright, but he can't. There's really no basis in law for claiming that these things have a copyright and the copyright was infringed. And unfortunately, the lawyers didn't argue anything else. And then one of the unfortunate ways that the law works is you have to argue all of the possibilities at once. If you don't say, they infringed my copyrights and this was unjust enrichment and this was there's a whole bunch of other sort of non-copyright things you could argue about this kind of stuff fraud could have been something they could argue in that case if you don't argue those all at once you lose them you have to you you don't get to say i think it's a copyright problem and lose on the copyright problem and go back for a fraud attempt so That's something where I know of a specific instance where this new work, valuable work, research effort, all very interesting, and yet there isn't a copyright here. This is in the public domain. You don't get to argue a copyright infringement here.
1: We should move on because we could talk about AI and what's copyrightable all day. Canada recently, and somewhat very quietly, has just put a pause on their public domain. So uh, I uh, I wasn't aware that... Canada had been using this life of the author plus 50 years for a lot longer. So basically, they're already dealing with life of the year plus life of the author plus 50 years. And we won't have to worry about that until post 78 stuff, as far as I can tell. More or less. Basically, what happens is because this went into effect at the end of December, their copyright from this year for the next 20 years, nothing will enter the public domain for another 20 years so they've got nothing new coming in because everything has retroactively gotten an extra 20 years so there's going to be 20 year dry spell in canada for public domain work because it's keeping in line with the burn convention so i think that's a pretty big deal i mean i i heard about it coming up and i knew that there are people trying to stop this bill but it was basically already done because when you talk about international trade agreements they're just it's just done deals, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, this is like on that particular front, this is a really interesting one because burn. I actually do not have these years, you know, on the tip of my brain, right? burn was always measured in the life of the author and the burn convention started in the 1880s. So Byrne signatory countries have measured in the life of the author for a very long time. I don't know when Canada started using life of the author plus 50 years as their term. And I also don't know off the top of my head when the Byrne convention switched to life of the author plus 70. We had life plus 50 for a little while in compliance with Byrne. And then in 1996, we upped it to life of the author plus 70, also in compliance with Byrne. What it means to like those later changes that from like from 50 to 70 Um, Sometimes people say, like, talk about, like, the Mickey Mouse copyright extension, like Disney is the, the fault of all of this. It's not actually only Disney, right? It actually is that these other countries have other models of how copyright works, and so they think it should be longer. And yet it's also something that corporate content holders really exploit to try to expand things. So what's really interesting is that we upped our term to Life Plus 70 in 1996 Canada has been resisting that until now. So they've been under international pressure to lengthen their copyright terms for a really long time. And they didn't, and they didn't, and they didn't, and then they did. One of the things that I I haven't followed it super closely, one of the things that is going on is that that was something where the U.S. was putting significant pressure on them to extend the terms. I'm not quite sure why they agreed to retroactive extensions, because... That is a particularly stupid thing. We did it. It's It wasn't great when we did it. Um, and it doesn't make any sense under any of the justifications for how copyright works. But it happens when people extend the terms.
1: Yeah, I imagine a lot of the pressure in the 90s, especially, I, I don't know about the history of the Berne Convention, but I imagine what happened was a lot of this was, so when the burn convention first came about, the United States was still like a pirate nation. So we still were copying a lot of things from the UK. We stole novels. We were doing all this kind of stuff. Now we tend to associate that with China. And I think there's definitely some Chinese uh, global, competitiveness that, okay, we're on the top in the IP game, therefore we're going to extend the IP game. Because I'm not used to international conventions that are not just puppets of the U.S. So I assumed mm-hmm. when the Bern Convention said 20 more years, it's because the United States wanted 20 more years. So in this case, maybe it isn't. And that's why it was so strange to me.
3: I think I think there's more than just the U.S. that wanted 20 more years. But I also think that it's really interesting that Canada resisted the the pressure to extend things like whatever whatever pressures were put to bear to get the U.S. to extend it which is to say you know definitely a lot of U.S. based corporate copyright holders like those pressures showed up and and were you know were catered to in the 1990s for the U.S. and it took Canada another 30 plus years to cave to those pressures Unfortunate, And, and there have been a bunch of attempts, even just in the last few years, to get them to extend it. And they have managed to avoid it until now. So, unfortunately, um, that one went pretty quickly.
1: I think we should talk about economic rights of copyright systems. For instance, the way that we talk about copyright, especially in the United States, is about the protection of authors and the protection of creators And in the um, Jamie Boyle's Public Domain book, which I read a long time ago and I went went over chapter two, uh, Nancy's recommendation, and a lot of it was in the Constitution itself, it's framed as to promote economic growth generally. So the progression of sciences and useful arts rather than the economic benefits that accrue to individuals as a property right, as like a natural property right. And there's actually some really interesting stuff where Thomas Jefferson is talking about, like, look, property law, man, is just like a construct. It's just what society deems useful. And like that's basically the same stuff that he was, that Marx built off of. He was building off Locke and saying, yeah, these are just laws that exist for the benefit of people. And so if we didn't want copyright to be longer, we can just not do it if we want copyright to cover fewer things. There's no nothing in the constitution that actually makes us do that. Really all of our copyright law seems to mostly come from international agreements at this point.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting the way the places where there are these differences in the theories of what copyright is about internationally. Because like when you read about us I, 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 for for all that I hate this idea of like framers' intents, like, like that's not how it should ever have worked. But it is interesting to look at what people were thinking about when they wrote things like, you know, the the, the clause in the Constitution that that patent and copyright come out of. And it's real clear that all of them thought, that in general monopolies were a bad thing like that's i don't know all of them but that was widely accepted conventional wisdom at the time monopolies are bad and nation
1: of cory doctoros creating a government
3: exactly right monopolies are bad well i mean monopolies (laughs) are bad they had far fewer like monopolies are bad but definitely we have far fewer people competing with us because you know women can't own businesses and people who aren't white men can't do much and people who don't own property can't do much like so there's all those kinds of problems with it but like when you look at it they're all kind of going it we should do something to help protect works that was already sort of established as a legal principle from the 1700s onward like a lot of European law had something about, like, there's rules about copying stuff. So there was, like, there's rules about copying stuff, but most of them give exclusive control to some kinds of people, and usually exclusive control is bad. So what's our reasoning for why we should give anybody exclusive control? And in Europe, especially in France, there's a whole field of we give people control of their work through laws, Because of these natural rights, because they're the creators and there's a natural inherent connection between the creator and the work. And that's why it was always measured in lifetimes, for one thing. Whereas if you look at like those underpinnings of U.S. law, uh, most of the people, and this is also in some of U.K. law, most of the discussion is kind of like we think people, if people don't get to control their works, they get frustrated when other people profit off of them right away. Therefore, we're going to give a period of exclusive control. But it was always short. It was always super short. Like in early Anglo law, it was seven years renewable for 14. And then in early U.S. law, it was 14 years renewable for 28. And at a certain point in U.S. law, it was 28 years renewable for 56 years. But it was always like these terms of years and they always ended and you... Uh, you know for the longest one you had to renew side note multiples of seven is an echo of the apprenticeship systems of ancient like guilds in the uk like you were an apprentice for seven years and a journey person for seven years and then you were free to go practice your trade on your own like our u.s law was in multiple of sevens up until 1976 because of old and super antique British apprenticeship rules. Like that one always blows my mind. Um, I was oh,
2: hoping it was some like, like her- hermetic, like Freemason shit. <laughs> yeah. It's,
3: it's wild how long things like that can persist in legal systems for absolutely no reason. But we had this theory that it was about providing economic incentives to, to creators that the terms should always be limited. Like almost all of the early writing about copyright in us legal discussions is, taken for granted that the terms should be very limited because the long-term goal is economic and other expansion and quote progress, um, research progress, all of those kinds of things. The public domain, like to connect it all together, right? Like the individual rights are incidental to the public domain to some degree in this economic model. Like we want more works because we want progress. That's a collective goal. We want there to be more things for people to share and know. That's a collective goal. These protections for individuals are a tool by which we achieve that. And in the U.S., for a real long time, they were limited-term tools by which we achieved that. And they've expanded partly because of international influence, partly because of you know corporate influence and 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 goals and guidance and uh, international corporations too. So it's not just the U.S. It's But it's real interesting to see how those things have developed. It's also really interesting to see where, like, people do bring up the rhetoric of, like, this is about economic incentives and where they don't even pretend. They're just like, it's because we want more money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of people, particularly even leftists, have a, a very great connection between intellectual property and labor And and that if I create this, I labored to it, I should control the fruits of my labor. And that's absolutely not the way we conceptualize copyright, really. It doesn't come from this natural right, it actually comes from this limited monopoly. Everything about, like, when people, when I tell people I hate copyright, it's not because, like, I think it's just bad, although I think that too. It is just weird. It is like ghost, like, telepathy levels of just, like, weird, strange rules of like, this is some idea that means something for some reason. that's, Maybe why, that's I why I like it. It's some
2: occult shit. <laughs> Maybe
1: that's why I yeah. like it so much. It just makes all these weird assumptions. It does.
3: It's It has have- You know, when you can see things that cast light on how weird copyright is, those often stick out for me. The XKCD cartoon, I don't read it religiously anymore, but very popular for a long time as an online cartoon. It's like stick figures. There's one and this is one of the great things about copyright is like I can tell you what was in this cartoon. And under certain legal systems, that's not an infringement. And on others, it could be and all those kinds of things. Doesn't matter because Randall Monroe, the creator of this comic strip, CC licenses all of it. So you can make copies of all of it. And I have embroidered them for crafts a million times and carved them on pumpkins and all kinds of things. All that aside, he did a comic that is for me one of the great like illuminators of how weird copyright is, is a person in a bookstore it's like, it's just a three-panel strip, I think. Reading a book and then going through one of those sensors at the doors, like we have in libraries, and the sensor going beep 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 beep, and the last panel is somebody else saying to him, "Hold on a minute, you have a book in your brain, don't you?" And it's like, yeah, it's
2: like you. Can, they have chairs in Barnes and Noble. There's a cafe in there, <laughs> like.
3: Like that's a thing that you can well, one no, to avoid getting into the ridiculously technical terms for all of this, like when you are a creator, right? Yes, you do have a natural connection to your artwork or whatever, but it's not quite like other physical property because somebody else can read your book and depending on how their brain works, they could even remember it word for word in their own head and
2: doing thought crimes.
3: And and that is definitely not something that somebody else should get to control. And, and if you like, even if I, I don't know, I haven't thought about this super heavily in terms of sort of leftist political theory but like if we're thinking about things that are communal and shared right like creativity is almost never an individual act there's always communal elements to it and also the idea yes i made that and and it's mine to some degree but also like so i had influences but also like you know um what you the i you scream ice cream you scream for ice cream like There's a bunch of songs like that. I think songs are probably one of the easiest examples where like, give it 50 years, almost nobody knows where it came from anymore. If it's that easy and compelling for other people to keep in their heads, they're going to have it there. They're going to base other things on it. It's absolutely unconscious. It's a natural process. And the idea that we have all these laws that are like, no, you can't do that because that, that is copying. (laughs) Uh, those they all get very weird very quickly i just that's copying and it's like we're pattern matching
0: you know we're absolutely bug fuck pattern matching creatures so it's like at what point is that copying yeah
2: it's like if you create something like if you paint a painting it's like someone had to make the paintbrush someone had to make the canvas unless you did it yourself. But then like all of the materials that have existed since the dawn of time and matter that came together to like create everything that led up to that paintbrush being created. Like
0: it's Vantablack all over
2: again. Yeah. Oh, Vantablack.
3: (laughs) I have a beloved artist friend who has a solid or had a solid black cat. This is an artist friend who works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation is one of my favorite people to talk to about copyright because he has many of the I should control it impulses of artists who make a living off of their art. But he also works with people who are advocating for general, not less protection, but different approaches to copyright. Um, sorry. He had a beloved all black cat named Vanta Black. Named Incredible. that in offense at the idea of Vanta Black and all of those kinds of things.
2: I get pissed off any go, time I go to like a botanical garden and like plants are copyrighted because I know it's about like the genes and like someone had developed the whatever, but I'm like, there should be a fucking copyright symbol next to a plant. <laughs> There's
3: probably patents, maybe trademarks. Patents I've seen are...
2: multiples. There's all sorts of shit on them.
3: It shouldn't be copyrightable. I did. Uh, this is a you guys mentioned me being twitter known uh my my account's locked right now because classicists quote um the white supremacists who are interested in classical history for various reasons got interested in me earlier this week so my account's locked right now but uh if you go looking in my account for mentions of the word apples you will find a touch point of mine which is i am Extremely, extremely ticked off that the University of Minnesota, for whom I work, is on the forefront of intellectual property commercializing apple varietals and Uh. plant patents (laughs) and trademarked names and the Sweet Tango, the Honeycrisp. There's a whole bunch of apples you've heard of because they're branded uh, that are University of Minnesota apples. And it's great. There's this whole theory that that's the important way to get them out there to the public. This is how we get university research out to the public. And yet, there are also plant varietals that the University of Minnesota developed before they went down the restrictive commercialization path. Harrelson apples are my favorite example of those, also developed at the University of Minnesota, not under proprietary control, Anybody can grow Harrelsons if they want to. And they're very tasty. Um, You should grow them. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I I get really uh, frustrated at how accepted it is that commercialization is the best way for things like public research to be shared with the public.
2: Yay, capitalism. (laughs) There we go.
3: I just have to say,
0: as somebody from Washington, for whom apples are like our state symbol, I'm offended at Minnesota.
3: (laughs) Hey, but what we're doing, some of the research we do is cold hardy varieties. Um ah. Yeah, but, but, but believe me, the University of Washington is far ahead of us on commercializing apple
2: varietals. I'm sure.
3: Is that sure. where Cosmic
2: Crisp comes from?
3: Like half of our state is just apples, so. Um, Cosmic Crisp is derived from Honeycrisp, I think.
2: I love Cosmic Crisp.
3: I like the old ones. <laughs>
1: Universities should start making new strains of weed and trademarking and <laughs> trademarking and
2: and patenting them. That that's coming surely. That is a real interesting yeah.
3: avenue for just dis- like not yet, right? Not there yet, but yeah, right now, obviously, there's a whole bunch of minor actors moving in spaces like that, branding around things like weed, and and yeah. universities aren't in there yet because the laws aren't quite there yet, but. M- when when universities do get there are they going to wipe out all the other competitors i don't know
2: yeah like our weed strains in the public domain are like mushroom strains in the public domain like i'd
3: bet that some independent entrepreneurs are filing patents on some of that stuff now although until it's federally delisted uh, i don't think you can get plant patents around that kind of stuff
1: Um, i'm literally looking it up and you can
3: Okay, there we go. Like, it, it seems like something, there's enough commercial activity in the space that it seems like something where there would probably already be extant patents. I mean, there are there are pa- drug patents for all kinds of, you know, restricted substances. So, um, yeah.
2: Especially since, like, Silicon Valley assholes are, like, into microdosing. And so they're getting into the, like, we gotta max out our productivity whatever by microdosing LSD and shrooms and weed and going on like ayahuasca trips on the weekend. Yeah. That's probably going to be be some kind of
3: a Theranos for, for shrooms at some point.
2: (laughs) Evil queen, (laughs) vampire queen.
1: Leaf legal. The, the attorney. Oh my God. I love like doctors and, and lawyers and stuff who make their whole branding like around pot. Like there was like, I think I literally went to a doctor one time that was like, Dr. Feelgood was like the name of oh his my God.
2: Business. Wow. Sure.
1: Uh, Cause he was a medical marijuana dude. I wasn't going there for that, but.
2: I love all the gay doctors in LA.
1: <laughs>
2: looking forward.
1: What do you think the future of the public domain is looking like? Is it going to be, especially when we were talking about AI and everything, are we seeing a more expansive public domain where people are going to go? Okay. Yeah. Things just are going to fall into the public domain more. Or is it going to expand to then attract more things in, in copyright mm-hmm. and therefore reduce what goes into the public domain going forward?
3: That's like a really interesting question. So I, I'm going to do one thing here, which is I'm going to put the depressing thing first, right? So I used to spend a lot more time thinking about the problem of, for example, movie and TV companies not being willing to sell copies of their stuff to libraries anything that's super long term, I put a little bit less mental effort into these days for a variety of reasons, among them global geopolitical instability and climate change. Um, So I don't know, in 50 years, will there be any functioning legal systems that deal in copyright? This is an open question for me. Um, Maybe 50 years is too short a timeline. I sure hope it is. But I hope that these are things that we are still dealing with in 50 years and 100 years. In some ways, that's that's a hopeful thought for me. So thinking along that line, that these are things where we're going to be dealing with the repercussions for a long time to come, um, there's sort of two ways where copyright is, it's not just copyright. There's two things I think of as evolutionary pathways here, where like overall, I don't think there's going to be less control through legal systems both because I do think there will be some legislative type stuff kind of like what happened in Canada right that the law was only passed a year or two ago and then now this year we've frozen the public domain in Canada okay I think some of that is gonna come but one thing that's happening that's quite interesting is most of those efforts have been abandoned on like the expanding past life plus 70 I don't know too many, I, I don't know. I may be being a little bit too optimistic here, but I don't think there's a lot of people putting a lot of effort into that, partly because there has been more public recognition that copyright affects our daily lives a little bit more. And so there is more public pushback when copyright laws get produced at that high a level. There's a lot more little tinkery laws that have been passed in the last few years There's some like the Music Modernization Act thing. There's there's new things that affect small groups of rights holders. But so I'm not so sure that legislative or even treaty type changes are going to extend copyright terms. But in terms of legal systems, contracts, service agreements, those are already a new problem. Because if if not new, but like a, a parallel problem over who gets to control and use things because you you can have contracts that where if, if something is the sole source of materials, even if they're in the public domain, right? So like this has happened with like scanned government documents among other places in Canada, but it sometimes happens with library collections too. Like if you're the only source of the new copies of a thing that's in the public domain, you can set your terms for how people use them. And people use contracts to set terms for how people use those. Libraries don't tend to try to like prevent much of that kind of use, but a lot of public-private partnership type things that libraries do end up where there's a commercial vendor who now has the only copy of some of our public domain materials and they're charging for use and they're producing terms of use that say this is the only way you are allowed to use these. And then sort of parallel to that also this what we already talked about, where there's more and more streaming media, where nobody except the originators ever get a copy. That's sort of like on the legal side and the system side, I don't see I I see lots of small developments that like, I don't see there being a bigger public domain in the future. I I do think there's also like some interesting sort of social and inter, not interpersonal, but at the personal level things like, do you hear people having many more people having legitimate discussions around things like is the only ethical thing to do for streaming content that you know might be not just removed like they might not just renew sorry they might not just not renew a tv show they might remove all copies of it ever that like does that mean that it's absolutely ethical to pirate things again i lean towards yes um not yes (laughs) not traditional life necessarily but like personally I think there's some compelling ethical arguments there, um, especially since often the creators of those kinds of shows don't get like when the only copy disappears, they don't have a copy either. Like, so there's, there's more people who are aware of these kinds of things and a lot more um, ways people route around it too. So, Like, I don't know, maybe I'm headed here towards, like, a cyberpunk future where, like, the official systems are all locked down, but then there's Max Headroom. Like, I don't know. I'm definitely dating myself by referencing Max Headroom, but I loved that show in a certain time in my life. That was about pirate TV, among other things.
1: Oh, yeah. And he was also in, uh, he also played Bowser in Super Mario Bros. movie. That was Max Headroom.
3: Same actor?
1: Videodrome also has pirated... TV in it. I don't think it was yeah. the same actor, but <laughs> it was right. um, the character design was Max Headroom.
3: Oh, okay. I don't think I knew that. I think I actually intentionally avoided that Mario movie. I may have been old enough to be like, mm, no.
1: <laughs> yeah, I started watching Hackers and, the other day and found out Johnny Lee Miller cannot do an American accent, and he never has, and he's always done it the same way, which is to yell loud. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in elemen- in Elementary, the Sherlock Holmes show that he was in, when he does an American accent, he starts yelling. And that's exactly how he talks in the entire movie Hackers, is he just yells. And that's his American accent.
3: I haven't thought to compare those. I, I love Hackers. Again, that's like the slice of my life when it came out. Um, it's, it's the first movie I owned on DVD, and I owned it on DVD before I owned a DVD player because I wanted a copy of my own. And it was only available in DVD at the time. And I was like, I am buying that. Um, and uh it's a terrible movie, it's a wonderful movie. And yes, Johnny Lee Miller has some limitations, uh, as do many of the people in that movie. It's 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 a great um Yeah,
1: it's yeah. a movie everyone talks about and tricks you into watching, but it's not good. So I watched like uh uh Johnny mnemonic, and that's a bad movie. It's just a bad movie, but everyone's like, Oh, it's so influential to Cyberpunk, but it sucks. <laughs> it's a
3: Johnny Mnemonic's also a weird one because I I recognized that as a bad movie at the time. I only wanted to watch it because I liked looking at Keanu Reeves. Um (laughs) and valid. My father and I went to see it together. And my father doesn't like TV or movies or anything, but he was interested in the concept. And I think like he he like, you know, he liked some of the ideas in the movie. Like we all recognized it was a bad movie. But I like I think of hackers more as like camp enjoyable and Johnny Mnemonic is not, doesn't quite get there to me, but I can absolutely see hackers not being camp enjoyable to other people either.
2: Is there anything with Keanu Reeves in the public domain?
3: Uh, There, I don't think there's anything he, you know, I don't think there's any creative works in which he appears in which there's definitely no new copyrights in them, just given his age. However, the one of my favorite Shakespeare adaptations is one that he's in uh, much ado about nothing from uh Emma Thompson oh yeah that one's so good he's so Kate, hot in it <laughs> what's her name actually like Emma Thompson yeah Emma Thompson is kind of my favorite in that particular production um so yeah it's a it's a good example of of Uh, how the public domain can create wonderful
2: new artworks all the time. Everyone go watch Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing with Emma Thompson and Keanu Reeves and um,
3: Kate Beckinsale. I was trying to come up with her last name. I like her in that one too. Denzel Washington.
2: Denzel. Denzel. Denzel's in it.
3: Denzel's performance is not like, it's not my favorite performance of his ever. Um, Keanu's performance also not my favorite performance of his ever.
2: But he's a villain and he's sweaty and shirtless. In By that room, point, I was
3: no art. longer that kind of interested in looking at. <laughs>
2: <laughs> to me, that's the selling point. <laughs> I love that movie; it's so good. Oh, and uh, my own private Idaho is um, the Henry ad It's King Henry the yeah. Fourth and Fifth. That's yeah, right.
3: It's mm-hmm. an adaptation of a Shakespeare as well. Oh, I Keanu. didn't know that. He's
2: out there. D- yeah, right. My own private Idaho is just like gay sex worker Henry the Fourth and Fifth.
1: It's incredible. Right. It's why, like, the dialogue is so, like, strange. Yeah, it's really good. There's
3: some scenes that are almost direct quotes, and that's where you really notice the dialogue being.
2: Especially the fall staff stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good.
1: Yeah, once you get towards the end, it really starts showing, like, oh, okay, yeah, this goes to a fancy place. There's a conclusion happening. Like, it's, uh," and the, the language gets very formal.
2: Yeah, there was that whole, like, range of movies in the 90s and early aughts of, like, cool adaptations of classic literature, especially, like, fourteens mm-hmm. TM. Like, I just watched Cruel Intentions. Like, I showed Cruel Intentions to my best friend on Sunday, and he knew nothing about it. And, like, I'm assuming Dangerous Liaisons was in the public domain. Yeah, since so it's like we so, get, yeah. like, cool, fucked-up shit, like, <laughs> Cruel Intentions because things are in the public Domain.
3: I love Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Ten Things I Hate About You. Um, and then also um Clueless is kind of like a a way high example of that genre to me. That's a that's an adaptation of a Jane Austen book.
2: Yeah, it's Emma. Mm -hmm. Oh clueless is so good. Um, and then, like Kurosawa's got three Shakespeare adaptations, I believe, because he's got *Throne of Blood*, which is *Macbeth*. He's got *Dan*, which is *King Lear*, and then he's got a *Hamlet* one, but I forget what it is. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, come well, for that's... the public domain
3: talk, stay for the Shakespearean adaptation. Well,
0: that, I mean, that's it's
2: relevant.
3: Where I like thinking that's one of the things that excites me about the public domain. It also excites me about the places in copyright law where we do have some room to make new adaptations, even when something is in under copyright, like I, and this may just be because I tend to, probably have ADHD. I don't know. I keep going back and forth about whether I should get myself assessed for anything. I tend to think in about five directions at once. So I like things that have lots of things to think about in them. I do like straight adaptations like the Much Ado adaptation and I like I'm not actually I'm not particularly fixated on Emma Thompson, but her adaptation of Sense and Sensibility is a really great example of like taking an old public domain work And using some modern techniques to do a really pretty straightforward adaptation. I love things like Clueless and 10 Things I Hate About You, which are adaptations of public domain works. But then remixes and parodies and uh, anything where there's like three different existing copyrighted works being invoked at once. Those are the kinds of things that get me particularly excited about people's creativity. So it's not just the public domain that can do that. There are ways that copyright law allows some of that while copyrights are extant or we wouldn't get remixes uh, like I'm a sucker for reaction videos on on YouTube like kids react elders react like I like those and so I love the copyright law does still have room for those kinds of things even when there is a copyright but that's one of the things that's so exciting about the public domain is that there's more room for more things like that to happen with public domain works.
2: Yeah, like with Metropolis in the 80s, Giorgio Moroder, the like music composer and producer, a lot of synth stuff, um, worked with Donna Summer, um, a lot, Great, greatest ever do. He did like he took metropolis like he didn't like re- remake metropolis he took metropolis um what footage was there and he color tinted it not to like look like a like a like a color film, like it wasn't colorized, but it was like everything in one scene was like tinted red or everything in one scene is tinted blue. And then he put like Adam ant songs and like queen and like Bonnie Tyler and shit in it. And instead of inner titles, it's subtitles. And so when I show people metropolis, I show them that version because it's so bonkers Right. And I'm assuming like that's when Metropolis was still in copyright. So I'm assuming he got the rights to do that somehow. But that's just, it's so like, it's so fucking cool that like this one film and there's a million different cuts of it, like, has spawned so many different things. Like, I assumed it was already in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So when I saw it on the list this year, I was like, wait, really?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) It's Metropolis. Like, I just assumed. So that kind of loops
3: back around to the sort of the weirdness of copyright that we were talking about. Like the length of copyright now is so long that works are already influencing other works long before they come out of the public domain. The public domain is sometimes a problem for like influence and like that. It's also sometimes a problem for survival of the original work. But like, but also like it just sort of highlights that the way humans actually do creative stuff and the way copyright law is structured, don't really have very much to do with each other at all. And so there's all these different places where the law is just like, what, what, why did we ever do that to ourselves? Um, it's, it's always fascinating.
1: All right. So we should wrap up. Is there anything you want people to check out, um, any upcoming work or anything like that, that I can put in the notes?
3: I don't think I have anything good that I know of as like upcoming exciting things about the public domain. Yeah. Sorry. I could think about those and add them later. Um,
1: Yeah, I can do that. You can just send it to me and I'll put it in the notes later.
3: I'll see if there's anything I I can think about on that front.
2: What's your favorite, what's your favorite thing that went into the public domain this year? This year? Yeah.
3: Uh, I mean, I don't know the full list. That's, that's, that's one of those things. So like just looking at things like the list that, that, that the, the Duke center put out,
2: Yeah. Like the big ones. Yeah.
3: I like the, the Murnau sunrise film. Yeah. I don't know if that's like my favorite on that list, but that's one that I know has been used and quoted since like at, think there's footage from sunra Murnau's in there may be in the um gary oldman dracula there's some
2: film that quotes ex- it's interview with the vampire okay the, there um, we go brad pitt the, yeah like, i
3: know that there is a later <laughs> commercial film with vampires uh yeah that that has something to do with with that and so it made that made like that one made like i know about it primarily from the interview with the vampire it, it, invocation of it it's isn't that sort of like a wonder of technology that one of the vampires encounters somewhere and they're like, we have Yeah, because they can finally the see a sunrise mm-hmm. again. Yeah. yeah, and that's a great example, both of like things being in the public domain and the fact that things can actually be used before they're out of the public domain. I doubt, I'm not sure of this, but I'd be really surprised if there were identifiable rights holders for sunrise that could be asked when interview was filmed. Maybe there were, but like, You can you can build and adapt on things before copyrights are over. You should be able to do more than you can, Uh, but when they're over, you can do all kinds of cool stuff.
2: God, I bet again. Babylon was bad, but especially near the end and all through it. But especially near the end, it's like getting all the rights for all the stuff they put in that movie must have been a nightmare because it goes all the way from like very early cinema history to like God. There was a clip of the first Avatar in Babylon. I know it was, I went, Oh, come on in the, in the theater when I was there. <laughs> um, so I bet it was a nightmare. Thanks Nancy for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me. I can talk about copyright forever and it's always nice to talk with in a context where it's not presumed that copyright should be bigger or longer or more people should have more control. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Knowing that coming in.
1: Yeah. I think it's, um, better to try and figure out possible alternatives. And I, didn't. that's why we do it is to get library people thinking about it and what our possibilities are. Good night.